Benjamin Franklin said, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Death and taxes. Well, last week we dealt with taxes. And Pastor Andrew taught us and, and, and expounded scripture that Jesus basically said, pay your taxes. I don't know how else to put that, but honor the government that God has put in sovereignly over us. And so we pay our taxes. We honor the government. So Benjamin Franklin's right on that. That one's certain, and we, and we should honor that. The other one, though, except death, I would argue today, is not necessarily certain. Now, before you get all excited that I have some wonderful new potion that is going to prolong your life indefinitely, I don't. I, I don't have a special health food. Organic food isn't going to do this for you. There's all kinds of things. But death and taxes are the two major issues in life. And, and especially when we think of forestalling death, that is something that people have been chasing for all of history. How do we put off death? And our lifespans have been getting longer. Alan Sinclair, he does not want his death to be permanent. So after he dies, his blood will be flushed from his body and replaced with antifreeze. Technicians will then cool the body with dry ice and fly it to a cryonic center in Michigan. The center will keep it at minus 320 degrees. When a solution is found for whatever kills him, future technicians will thaw him out. Cured Allen will exist on earth once more. His wife has already died and undergone the cryonic solution. Oh, that's a sad state to put your hope in that. To put your hope in something that we don't know that will work. We, it's never worked. We have no evidence of that. But we, we crave somehow avoiding death. And, and avoiding what Benjamin Franklin said was certainty of death. Now, this morning, I'm not arguing that death on this earth isn't certain. If the Lord tarries and he doesn't return, then yes, death on this earth is certain. But as believers, we have a life that goes beyond death. We have an ability, God-given gift to live forever with the King of the universe. And that is what we want to talk about this morning. And so avoiding death is our topic, but avoiding spiritual death. And, and as I work through this text, this was just an exciting text for me. It's a text of hope. It's a text of encouragement, of getting our eyes back on a Savior and off this world which is so broken and so much a result of Genesis 3 in the fall. There is more than life on this earth. This is not all there is. Amen? Amen. And we can live forever, which is sort of an odd way to start a sermon. But that's where we're at because that's what Jesus teaches us today. Now, keep in mind the background here. This is Passion Week, which means this is the week of Christ's crucifixion. And we already talked about Sunday and Monday, and now we're in the middle of the week somewhere. And I have a picture of the, the temple. This was the temple in Jerusalem, and an artist rendering. And Jesus was coming back from Bethany about a mile away every day to the temple to teach. He was not running from the danger because he was fully in control. Nothing was surprising him. This was his plan, and he was coming to teach in the temple. And as he taught, you saw this conflict happening. And this has all the drama of a good movie. Because the leaders, the guys in charge, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the chief priests, they all hate him. He is contradicting what they've taught. He is taking their power away that they had with the people. He is taking their control away. He is attacking the status quo that had given them very comfortable lives. 
And so they are looking for any way to take Jesus down this week. And every day you have to understand all these interactions are interactions trying to get something on Jesus to kill him. Trying to find a way to crucify him because their problem was the people liked him. And if they kill him when when he still has the people's support, now they've still lost. And so each time he comes in and as he's teaching, different people try to trap him and different people try to confront and get him to say something that's prosecutable. And they fail and they fail and they fail and we get confrontation after confrontation after confrontation. This week is just the same different topic, but they are coming and confronting Jesus. And this time they think they have him trapped and they think they have a way that's even better than the whole tax question last week. And again, we don't always understand these questions, but see the bigger picture of the battle that's happening here. And if we can get them to say something stupid or wrong, we can kill them. And that's the setting every day in the temple. And Jesus doesn't shrink away from it, but he comes and teaches the good news of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, of what's happening, of the kingdom. Turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 44. We'll be looking at two different confrontations today that I think go together and are important to bring together. But they are trying to trap Jesus. They're confronting him. And we have a confrontation about the resurrection. And if there's life after this death, and then Jesus turns the tables and really shows their ignorance. And brings it back. But all of this is this topic of can we live forever? The bigger picture of can we live forever, I think, is can we have hope? Can we have hope in this life when things go desperately wrong? Can we have hope that there is a future and it's different and that God is handling our future and he's handling our present? Some of you have had weeks where that's hard and that's questionable. Today is a day that reminds us of who God is and that he is in control. And so we come to verse 27 of Luke 20. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a seat right around you. We invite you to take one of those. If you don't have one at home, take that home as our gift to you so you have God's word. But we come and and we see again the religious leaders here are fighting the truth rather than seeking to be changed by it. They are, they are just finding a way to get a Jesus. They're entrenched in their agenda and they aren't listening to anyone. As we've seen examples of this week in politics on both sides, people have made up their minds and nothing's going to change that. That's where we were at with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the leader of their time. So we come to verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, I'm going to stop there. We're not going to get into the content yet. You guys know who the Sadducees are? The Sadducees were different from the Pharisees. In fact, what's interesting here is they're opposed to the Pharisees. And usually the Sadducees and the Pharisees are like this. The Pharisees were sort of the, the religious leaders of the people. And so they would be out with the people and, and they were, were, were more the favorites of the common people. And they believed in all of the Old Testament. The Sadducees, however were more your upper-class leaders, the, uh, the aristocracy. And they came from a, a different background, a different lineage, and, and they really could trace their roots back to, to certain people, back to David and high priest Zadok back then. 
And so it'd be sort of like if we're getting together and you really felt you were better than everyone else in the room because you could trace your descendants back to the Mayflower. Or you could trace your descendants back to George Washington or something like that. That's what they were. And so they were just sort of this upper class, uppity, and they believed only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And, and so everything had to come from there. Now, out of that, they didn't believe that the resurrection was mentioned there. <laughs> Jesus is going to confront that. And, and so they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death that there was anything beyond this world. Oh, yeah, that's an encouraging worldview. That's a great mindset. The joke that I, this is going to be corny, a dad joke, but the joke I like is the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Hey, it's going to help you on a test. It's because you won't forget it. (laughs) If you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe that there's anything beyond this wonderful, perfect, blissful world we live in, that's discouraging. That's depressing. That's where they were at. And so they were well-to-do. They, um, they, they were sort of the modernists of the time. They were spiritual, but they didn't buy into the resurrection. They didn't buy into the supernatural. They sort of wanted to explain anything. And so the result of that is you're just living for life in the present. There's no accountability. You can do really whatever you want that helps your life now. And so maybe there's some convenience to this worldview. But in this case, these men that are opposed to the Pharisees, that are usually butting head with the Pharisees, find a common enemy. And, and so they now come together to try to trap Jesus. This is sort of like a wrestling match. The Pharisees tried the whole tax thing, and that failed. So it's like they go to the side, and it's tag team. They tap out, and, and they, they tap the Sadducees. They say, okay, your turn. And the Sadducees come in with this question that they're going to ask. They have a way to trap Jesus. It's probably, by the looks of it, probably a stock argument that they use to trap anyone and to to prove their point. But they have a way that they are going to prove to Jesus there's no life after death. And either he's going to say that there, there isn't, and then all the Pharisees and all the people are against him and they can kill him. Or he's going to say that there is and look stupid because their argument is so wonderful and and awesome. And so let's see what happens. They go on in verse 28. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, and this is the trap. Point number one in your notes, Jesus secures our future and that future is life. Jesus secures our future and that future is life. And so they start with the trap in verse 28. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses, remember they only believe the first five books of the Old Testament, so they go back to Moses. Moses wrote those. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, they're referring to a tradition called leveret marriage. And this is out of Leviticus, or Deuteronomy rather. In fact, Deuteronomy 25.5 says, If brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So descendants were everything in in the Near East culture. And and especially male descendants, they could carry on your line. So if a husband died and there were no descendants, then the husband's brother had the responsibility to marry 
that, that um, wife, the, the widow. And then they would have children. Those children would take on the name of the dead brother. And so this was a way to carry on a line something that was very important to them. Now, some of you have brothers and you're thinking, huh, I'm, not, I'm glad we don't practice that now. No, I, <laughs> that, that's awkward. But understand, not so awkward to them. This was just part of the law, part of what they expected, and part of what God had given them so that they wouldn't be marrying outsiders and strangers. In fact, if you read, we don't have time to this morning, but if you read through the story of Ruth and Boaz, this comes into play there, and God used this to carry on the line of Christ and, and to, to bring the Savior into the world. And so the Sadducees, though, this is in the law. They believe this. They're going to use this. And so they say, okay, you know about leveret marriage, Jesus. Yeah, I, I wrote the book. Um, and, and so verse 29, now there were seven brothers. And you can see where this is going right from the start. The first took a wife and died without children. So in leveret marriage, what are you supposed to do? The next brother is supposed to take her as a wife. And he says, and the second in verse 30, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Now, I'm just saying, if I'm six or seven on the list, I'm a little nervous. I'm having, I'm having a cupbearer check for poison or something because there's a pattern. And, and most commentaries think that that's actually intentional in their story. There's some, some humor there that they're trying to, to bring into it. But all seven die, no children. And, and the reason why that's important, number one, it keeps the leveret marriage going. But number two, it's important because no man then has a, a greater claim on the marriage than another. Once you had kids, you had a greater claim on that marriage. And so they're trying to even the playing field. Seven husbands, all dead. I'm sure she didn't have any part of it. And then the wife dies. So their, their point, they're trying to, to present a proposition that so, shows how ludicrous the idea of resurrection is. How ridiculous it is. And they're basing this on their impression of what life after death looks like. Of what the resurrection would look like. Likewise, all seven left no children and died. Verse 32. Afterward, the woman also died. And here's where they have Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? Huh? For the seven had her as a wife. See, Jesus, this is ridiculous. You get to heaven if they're all resurrected. Does she choose? Do we do eeny, meeny, miny? Whose, whose wife will she be? None of them have more of a claim. And, and, and there is that idea of how ridiculous this is. This is the trap. And, you know, I, I know my sarcasm can get away with me some, from me sometimes. No, this is what they're doing. This is the argument of how ridiculous it is. And so how does Jesus answer this? Because this has trapped many a person that they've talked to. And so then we get Jesus' answer in verses 34 through 40. And there, there's a couple ways, there's a couple levels we can look at this answer. And, and, and I'll, just, I'll just share what those are quickly because I want to go to one of them. The first is we need to understand the picture here that Jesus is being attacked. And in his wisdom and omniscience and sovereignty, he has perfect answers to these things and he shuts people down. Because he is in control. He's got it taken care of. There is nothing that we can approach God with that shocks him, that surprises him. It's, we laugh because they're trying to trap Jesus, the God and creator of the universe. And they can't do it. So that's, 
that's the big picture narrative here. But I don't want us to lose the content of the argument and what Jesus says about hope and the resurrection and what it means that we have a living God and that we will live after death. And so that's where I want to spend most of my comments this morning on is looking at that content because Jesus here uses real teaching to confound the experts of the day. And so we get to Jesus' answer and we, we get some glimpses into what resurrected life will be like. And I use the word glimpses intentionally because God doesn't lay out life after death completely. We don't have a manual of what every moment's going to be like. But he gives us glimpses in his wisdom and sovereignty just what we need for hope and to know what we can look forward to and to trust God with what we look forward to. One other note, when we are talking about resurrection here, Everyone will be resurrected, but we are specifically talking about resurrection of believers to life. And and that's important to know. Everyone will be resurrected. Those that don't follow Christ will be resurrected to judgment. And, And God will hold them in his righteousness and justice, hold them accountable for their sins. But those that are believers will also be held accountable, but the blood of Jesus Christ has paid the price for those sins. And and so we are talking here about the resurrection of believers to Christ. And so we get four glimpses that I want to mention as we go through the text. But Jesus' answer in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now wait, wait, wait. Before I lose you to the whole marriage discussion, we're going to go there. But I want you to look at the beginning of verse 35 to another phrase that we lose because we're like, no, I'm not going to be married. But the beginning of verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Jesus narrows down who he's talking about. And the first glimpse we have of the resurrection is not everyone participates in resurrection to life. Not everyone participates in resurrection to life. We see Jesus give this, and he's using wording, those that are considered worthy. And they aren't considered worthy, we know from other scripture and and even some of the tenses here, they aren't considered worthy because they've earned salvation. They are considered worthy because Jesus has applied his blood to them through the cross. And they're considered worthy because their sins have been paid for by someone else. And so these are people that have repented and followed Christ. And God is considering them worthy, not by their own doing, but because of Jesus Christ. They have forgiveness and salvation through the death of Christ. Our decisions in this life directly affect our destiny in the next. And if you've never thought about that this morning, I want you to go away with that. Our decisions in this life directly affect our destiny in the next. Whether we are in eternal life with Jesus Christ or eternal judgment apart from Christ. And so Jesus brings that up. Those that are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection of the dead. And so he qualifies it. Not everyone participates in the resurrection to life. My prayer for you is if you don't know you're saved, if you, if you haven't made that decision to follow Christ, I pray that today's the day. Because it's as simple as saying, God, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Please forgive me. I follow you. And at that point, 
Now you're part of this group. And it's not magic words, but it's a heart that believes in Jesus Christ and repents and gives ourselves to Jesus Christ. And so don't miss the beginning of 35 because you're annoyed with the end of 35. So the next letter B, life in the next age will be very different from life in this age. And now we get into the whole marriage discussion. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. The Jewish mindset, even among the Pharisees that believed in a resurrection, was that we would be resurrected sort of into the same kind of life we have now. It just gets to go on for a while, and maybe some of the bad stuff's taken care of, but fundamentally, they would argue, it looks and feels like life now. And I can see where they get that, because we do have resurrected bodies that are connected to this body. And we could get into philosophically how that all looks, but there is a connection and there is a difference at the same time. And, and so we will have new bodies, but it looks through Scripture that there's some recognizable traits and some other things, but they are completely new bodies in function and in characteristics. And so Jesus here is saying, no, 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 your, your view that we're going to marry and given in marriage, that's from this world. That's from how this era was created. But it doesn't have to look that way. And Jesus says it's not going to look that way. And so then he says that at the end of 35, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. See, we will have new bodies with no sin. There will be a new heaven and new earth. And that implies that relationships will be different and on a completely different level. Imagine relationships where sin never enters the picture. What do you argue about then? How well do you know somebody if there is no shroud of, of, of sin, if there are no masks that we put on, if we can be completely transparent with each other and know that there is real love and, and real understanding of each other? See, relationships are different when you take sin out of the equation. And our relationships in heaven, in the new heaven and new earth, with every believer will be of that quality. Not just our spouse. See, I know we can, if, if you're in a happy marriage, this verse can, can sound really sad. Will the intimacy and the love and the fellowship and the partnership that I have with my spouse, will that all end? Really, God? I guarantee If God ends something in this world, he has something better in the next. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? See, we have to understand that God has had this planned from all eternity. And and he's not going to say there's no more marriage. Ha ha! Now you can only worship me. You don't have to love anyone. No, the reason is, is because our relationships with every other believer will be as deep and as real as they can get. Isn't that cool? That is an amazing thought. See, we don't know how all this exactly works out. We get a glimpse. We know that there won't be marriage. We know that there won't be sin. And so we can infer some of the rest. But I can guarantee you will love your spouse more in eternity than you do now. And you will know them better in eternity than you do now. They just won't be your spouse. Because there won't be marriage. 
because you'll also know other believers with that same quality of relationship. It will be perfect fellowship. Now, I've got to say, when we get together and when we worship together and sing together and play games together, family game nights coming up, that fellowship is sweet. That is so sweet. But it's just a taste and a glimpse through a dark glass of what's coming. It's going to be amazing, village. It's going to be amazing. And we should look forward to that. The need for all those things that we look to marriage for, intimacy and love and acceptance, those needs will all be met by Jesus Christ, who will be living with us. They'll be all met there. And we are then free from from really imposing those needs on another human being that is flawed. We'll be free from that to have those needs met in Jesus Christ and we can be free to be in relationship. If there's something good in the present... In eternity, God has something better designed. I'll leave that one there. You can send me hate mail later. I tried to explain this one to my daughter this morning. Didn't work. Are you serious, Dad? Doesn't sound any fun. Do you trust God's plan? It'll be amazing. Life in, this, in the next age will be very different from life in this age. Letter C comes from our next verse. We will not be able to die. Verse 36. For they cannot die anymore. And it's not just that we won't die. We can't die in eternity. There is a different quality of life that's altogether different from what we have now. And so Jesus says they can't die anymore because they are equal to angels and are the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. And the idea there, equal with angels, doesn't mean we become angels. People have made that mistake. That's heresy. Don't go there. He's saying we're equal with the characteristics, specifically the immortality of angels. And, and so we, we take on some of those characteristics that imply that we won't die, that we will live forever. And, and he actually uses all three phrases to do that. Equal to angels. We're the sons of God, sons and daughters of God, which we already are, but it will be fulfilled in eternity. Because right now it's hard sometimes, right? Anyone ever sin? No, no, no. no. Yeah, we sin. There's all these things that interrupt that relationship. In the new heaven and new earth, there's no sin, and we have perfect fellowship with God. It is going to be amazing. And so sons of God will be fully sons and daughters of God in the next age. Sons of the resurrection refers to Jesus' resurrection and ours that are the means for how we are sons and daughters of the king. Because of Jesus' resurrection, there's victory over sin, and then we are resurrected into this new life. We have full sonship because of the resurrection. And so we won't be able to die. It is going to be a marvelous change. We will have new bodies that aren't racked with what these bodies are racked with. I thought about that this week. I'm studying this, and then we had electrical issues in the house. I'm crawling through the attic, which is always fun, and trying to trace down electrical and where, where the electrical um, broke down. And, and I may be getting a little older than I was, and I was kneeling down crawling, and I went to stand up, and my knee decided not to. I was like, no, no thanks. And... Um, and I'm thinking, I, I hate getting old. Uh, there's some things I love about it, but body-wise, I hate what's happening to my body. I, I know what I used to be able to do. And then I go to this verse and these passages that say, 
man, we're going to be without sin in a new, resurrected to a new body completely with Christ. I'm like, this is good. This is something to look forward to. Letter D, we will be in close relationship with our living God in the next age. We will be in close relationship with our living God in the next age. Now, in the argument here, Jesus has made some logical arguments. He's answered their concerns about marriage. But now he's going to go a little bit on the offensive, and he's going to say, okay, you believe in the Torah? You believe in the first five books? Let's go to Moses. And so he has another argument that comes in, but this argument directly shows that we are, we are alive with Christ and that we serve a living God. Verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. I think he smirked a little bit right then. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, and he's talking about the burning bush when Moses was called. Keep in mind, they didn't have chapters and verses back then. And so you referred to a section of, of the, the Bible, of Scripture, with the title about it. So he says, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. This is a brilliant argument, but understand it. Remember Moses is at the bush? And, and God says, I am the God of Abraham, of Jacob, and Isaac. He uses all present tense words there. And, and Jesus is saying, man, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dead and stinking in the grave and that's it, that's sort of a stupid thing to say. I am the God of a corpse. And, and so Jesus is saying, no, he didn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It'd be like, we get this in English, right? I can say, I'm the husband of Susie. And that implies that she's alive and that, that we're still married. But if I came up here and says I was mar- and said, I was married to Susie, that's a problem. That, that means either something happened to her or something happened to our marriage. And so Jesus is just using common sense. And, and those of you that love the English language or, or grammar, get into this. Because Jesus is using it. says, even your scripture says that God is the God of the living. Verse 38. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And, and there's a couple ways to, to read that. And I think you have to read it both ways. For all live to Christ. In Christ's mind, all live we're still alive, but also we live for him. The, the, the result that there's going to be a resurrection, that we are saved and we are given this life is we live for God. We live for a living God. And so this point is we will be in close relationship with our living God in the next age. And Jesus is using a great tactic here as he goes to their own scripture. What, what they, and and by the way, when we are talking to Muslims and Mormons and, and different people, it is so helpful as a tactic, as, as just a good principle, to listen, find out where they're coming from, and use what they are willing to agree to to make your argument. And that's what Jesus does here. He knows Scripture. He rightly interprets it. And so he understands that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. Now there's a lot of discussion. What happens when we die? Well, Paul answers that in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9. through 9. 
We're to be of good courage, he says. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For, if we, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And we get the phrase out of this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And we know as soon as I die here, as soon as my life ends in this age, I am with Christ. There's no gap. There's no sleep period. There's no, oh, suddenly I wake up 2,000 years from now. I am with Christ. And this verse is one of the ones that proves that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in relationship with God. Remember the thief on the cross? The one that repented. What did Jesus turn to him and say? Today you will be with me in paradise. We can have confident faith that as soon as life ends here on earth, we are with God if we are believers. That is a marvelous, marvelous promise. Don't miss that promise here. You know, there's other things. If they had been willing to look through the Old Testament Scriptures, they could have seen the other Old Testament Scriptures that they denied. In Daniel, we read, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel is teaching there's a resurrection here. There is more to this life. And he goes on to describe that a little further. One other just thought just a plant in the back of your head, all of this about resurrection is foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection on Sunday of that same week. And so he's arguing for a resurrection and he's going to prove it in four or five days by rising from the dead. That is awesome. That's cool. So one of the things that we often need to ask when we go to Scripture is, so what? And don't ask that in a cynical way, <laughs> in a shake your fist at God way. But okay, so what? What does God want us to learn from this? And I just have four quick points that I want to make before we look at the last four verses. First, all of this confirms that, there, that we have a living God. He is alive and with us. He resurrects us. He is not absent. He is not dead. He is present in your life now. Because... For God to resurrect us, He has to be alive. For us to have a relationship with Him, He has to be alive. We serve a living God, and you are not alone. Even in this fallen, gross, despicable world, we are not alone. Second point I want to make is just out of verse 38 there. We are to live for Him in the now and the forever. For all live to Him. And the idea here isn't that we will live for Him. We live for Him now. And so if we know that there's more to life, and there is, if we know that there's a resurrection and we'll be in eternity with Christ, and we will be if we've given our hearts to Christ, then we are to to start practicing eternal life with Him now. We're to be living for Him now. So we're to live for Christ all the time. This isn't, oh, I'm going to live for Christ tomorrow. Actually, Sunday's the holy day. I'm going to live for Christ today. Tomorrow, I have some things at work I have to deal with that probably I don't want Jesus to see. No, no, no. When we live for Christ, that means everything we do is to please Christ for His glory. I didn't read verse 9 out of 2 Corinthians 2 where he's talking about absent from the body, present with the Lord. The very next verse says, So whether we are at home or away... Whether we're in this body and life now or we're in eternity with Christ, we make it our aim to please Him. We live to Christ now. 
And so this speaks to our goals. It speaks to our purpose. It speaks to our priority, to our time. It speaks to our obedience. Am I pleasing God? Now, now I think this is a term that we can really fall into Christianese really, really easily. I live for Christ. And, and we think of some spiritual things we do. So, so let me try to help us understand this in a different way. If someone lives for sports, if someone lives for baseball, what does that look like? By the way, today's the last day of the season. Dodgers are tied for first place, and their game's just afternoon. So we'll be done by then. <laughs> what does it mean to live for sports? When we describe someone like that, think about it. What does it mean? Answer. Talk back to me. To be consumed by it. Yeah, when someone's living for sports, man, every conversation. We're going to talk about Mike Trout again. No, sorry, sorry, Angel fans. <laughs> I wasn't referring to you guys, actually. <laughs> you're consumed by it, right? Because you're living for it. It's just part of it. What else? What does it mean to live for sports? They make it visible, Yeah. They have the little banner for the Dodgers, or I know there's football going on now, I think, but um, <laughs> perhaps I don't live for football. <laughs> okay, they make it visible. What else? They, they might plan their church schedule around it. <laughs> We're always done by noon. <laughs> Feeling a little sheepish now. <laughs> but... We do plan our schedule around things that consume us, things that we live for, don't we? What else? What does it mean to live for for sports or for something? What? You follow stats and research. How can you be a baseball fan and not? (laughs) No, you you learn about it. You study it. Liana, you We spend our money on it and our resources. Good, Jim. Everyone knows you're a fan. That's right. I don't know if you knew, but I'm a Dodger fan. <laughs> Eric. Gamble. gamble. Some people will, will gamble on it because they're so into it. And, and then you have fantasy sports. So, so take all those things. And when Jesus says we're to live for Christ, this is what we organize our schedule around. This is what we talk about. There should be no question that we're a follower of Christ because it's visible. Do you see how almost everything we said fits into this? This is what it means to follow Christ. Will people know that you're all in? Will people know that you're living for Christ this week? Because he saved us. He gave his life for us. He's going to resurrect us to eternity with him. Do you think we could live for him now? Two other implications, the so what's. Let her see. God has it worked out. What it will look like. Don't worry. God has our future worked out. God has eternity worked out. God knows what relationships and whether we'll be married or not in heaven. He has it worked out. But he also has our present worked out to get us there. You can't have someone's future worked out if you have no control over their present. And if you're not sovereign now. 
And so this gives great hope because I don't have to worry now. I'm to obey. I'm to trust God. I'm to, to do everything I can to follow him. But I don't have to worry as the, the crud of this world crashes down on me sometimes, as the pressures, as the weight, as the stress, as the hurts of this world, because I can trust that God is going to work this out for good. He's already worked it out. In this case, there was an apparent discrepancy. Goodness. How, how can marriage work this way? Jesus knew it wasn't a discrepancy. He had an answer. He works out our life too. Catch this today. If you can, and I've said this before, but if you can trust God with the, your eternity, you can trust him with tomorrow. If you can trust God with eternity, you can trust him with tomorrow or today. So we don't have to live a life of worry. God's got it. And it doesn't mean we're just laissez-faire, hands off, and I'm just going to sit on the couch and see what God does. But we obey, we follow, we please him, and he's got it. Letter D, there will be life after death. There's hope. I love this one. I resonate with this one. I love the fact that this world is not all there is. And so I can actually watch the news and know, ha, that's going to end someday. (laughs) And it's going to be better. Altogether better. So the last four verses I just want to go through briefly because I think, I think they tie in. I think Jesus is sort of capping off why this is possible. The first point was Jesus secures our future and our future is life. But how is he able to do that? And, and this, this next section answers that. He's able because he is more than just a man. He's more than the son of David. He is God. Again, he's attacking the view of the time. One of his titles was son of David. And that meant he'd be king, and that tied into the whole earthly king, let's kick the Romans' behinds out of here, and let's have a good life now. But they didn't understand necessarily that he was God and Messiah. But to to provide resurrection and forgiveness of sins, he must be God as well. And so in some verses that may be very confusing, and we'll try to explain them, in verse 41, but he, being Jesus, said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? Because he was called the son of David. Remember the word for Christ? That's not a name of Jesus. That's more of a title. It means anointed one or Messiah. How can they say that the Messiah is David's son? For David himself, and Jesus is going to quote Psalm 110 verse 1, the most quoted verse in the New Testament, by the way. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Huh? You got to read that one a couple times, right? I read that and I'm like, okay, I got to process this. The Lord said to my Lord, who's talking? And so if we had to sort of break this down to who's saying what? The Lord, Yahweh, and this is a little clearer in in the Hebrew, but the first Lord is Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, David's Lord, and that second Lord is the Messiah. And so it's God the Father says to David's Messiah, who David calls Lord, sit at my right hand, I will make your enemies my footstool showing his power and authority and transcendence over all that is on this earth. And so Jesus then asks the question, he says, so, so David calls him Lord. How's he his son? And, and Jesus is playing with words here a little bit. I think he's, he's also proving that they, don't, they aren't as smart as they think they are. He's like, you, you want to trap me? Answer this. And they can't. It's awesome. 
But the bigger picture here is he's showing that the Messiah is both fully man, son of David, and fully God, divine. And I believe this ties directly into our assurance of the resurrection because if Jesus isn't God, we have no assurance, no confidence, no hope that there's life after this or that certainly anyone can get us there. And Jesus is like, no, actually, if you think of the son of David and who I am, he's correcting their view of the Messiah. I'm fully man, but I'm also fully God. And he shows the authority and the greatness of the Messiah even over the great King David, which was the hero in Judaism. And Jesus says, even David calls me Lord. And the implied question is, why don't you? You're attacking me. You're confronting me. You're trying to kill me. Even your hero calls me Lord. Will you live for me? An amazing turnaround that Jesus isn't just trying to trap them. He's still trying to teach who he is. That same Jesus is at the right hand of God right now, interceding on our behalf, and he is still Lord. And we have a choice. Will I believe him? Will I follow him? Because those that do have hope and assurance, we know that we can hope in him, that we can trust him, that we are to live for him. And those that don't have eternity in judgment. This morning, choose Jesus. Make him Lord of your life. Echo David's word and say to him, you are my Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, you are my Lord. You are ruler of my life. You give me hope. I trust you with every circumstance that I face, even if I don't understand it, even if it hurts, even if I don't know how I'm going to get past it. I trust you because this life is not all there is. Lord, thank you for this hope, for this trust, this confidence. Lord, help us as your church to live for you. To not just live for sports or kids or family or work or whatever it is, but to live for you first and foremost, God. Lord, as we do, people will notice and it will take this world by storm. Thank you for your promises, for your word. In your name, amen.